This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome, audience. It's time again for NSPS Radio Hour. My guest today is Jim Cohn. Welcome, Jim. Hey, thank you. Jim, I changed my intro today because every year, every week, I say, welcome to the NSPS Radio Hour. People got got tired of hearing that, so I decided I'd change it up a little bit today. <laughs> All right. So we'll, we'll see if anybody notices. I'm sure they won't. <laughs> but, but nonetheless, uh, yeah, I have to start off with some sad news today, Jim. Oh. My, I found out this morning that my 2004 Kia Sorento is is dead. Oh well, it's not—it's not really dead. It just has a broken back. Uh, well, that's, for about that's three years, I've had this thumping noise in the back of my car sporadically. It's never been consistent. It would just happen on occasion. Sometimes when the wind was blowing, I've been trying to figure out what it was, and had it in the shop a number of times. And every time I took it in for oil change or whatever, I'd say, I'm, "I got this noise. I can't figure out what it is." Well, I left it Saturday morning uh, in the shop and found out when they were. I had them looking at tires because I thought I might need some, so I had it up on the rack. They discovered a, f- a fracture in the frame wow. at, at the back that was really severe, and if it had failed, basically the entire back end of my vehicle would have fallen into the road, um, which is kind of scary considering that I drive it up and down the interstate at 75 miles an hour. Yeah, that could have gotten uh, exciting. When I'm on trips, yeah, because I, told, I told, told the guy that this morning I was talking to him. He said, I don't even want to think about what would have happened if you'd have done that. So oh, um, at least now I know what the problem was. <coughs> yeah, the downside is, now the downside is i got to go find another vehicle, but that's okay. That's, that one, 325,000 miles is enough for any vehicle, I suppose. Yeah, it's time. Yeah, yeah it's, it's time, that's for sure. Yeah. Well, for the audience, the reason Jim is joining me today, Jim is um, a transplanted Easterner who now lives in the state of Washington. We'll talk about how you got there in a bit, Jim. But okay. the reason we're having this conversation is um, there's a lot of attention being paid these days to the future of surveying. You know, there's a task force going on now. Um a lot of different activities, lots of newspaper articles. Um, I was just looking at at uh, results of a of a poll that was done for us. We we posted it in our newsletter. Had 400 respondents, which was pretty good if you think about it. Um, but every every piece of information we get, every conversation we hear, whether it's people. Mine and your age, Jim, or it's people who are just coming into the profession, some of them in school, some newly um, started into the profession, are talking about where's our next generation of surveyors going to come from because of our average age. Everybody's concerned about that, and this is all old hat. People hear this all the time. Mm-hmm. The thing we don't talk about is as we move into the future, where are the support people coming from? for those licensees we're talking about when we talk about the future of the profession and we're, you know, how we're going to how we're going to perpetuate it and, and truly we can't perpetuate it without our professionals there's no question about that but with a few exceptions there aren't hardly any people out there working totally on their own uh, I know I know a few people personally who are doing that <coughs> but in general they're not providing a full range of professional services. You know, they're providing boundary surveys or 
small site kind of things, but not the kind of kind of projects that surveyors get involved in um, yeah, routinely. Some of them and, just do consulting work and, and nothing yeah, more. Exactly. And so, for the for the sake of the audience, the reason Jim and I are talking today is is that. By and large, there's very little discussion, at least that I can see. Maybe, Jim, you disagree with this, but as far as I can determine, there's very little conversation about where the next generation of survey technicians are coming from. And this is particularly of interest, I think, right now, because after the last recession, and I shouldn't even say after because I'm not convinced it's really over yet, but <laughs> when when we had some kind of a rebound recently, um maybe short-lived, but yet it was a rebound. I kept hearing people all the time saying, I can't find survey techs anymore. You know, I had to let my yep. people go. They're not coming back, and I don't know where my next group is coming from. And so for the audience, again, Jim is actively involved in trying to help solve that problem and perhaps at the same time assist with the other problem uh, on down the line, depending on what licensing structures are. But for quite some time, Jim's been involved in training, teaching, preparing that next generation of survey techs that are so critical to the profession. So we're going to talk about that today. Before we start talking about that, though, uh, I think Jim's story is pretty interesting on your your genesis and the surveying profession and then your 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 path through the wilderness to, <laughs> to where you are today, uh, and having come out of the wilderness into enlightenment now, I suppose. But yeah. but anyway, uh, tell our audience about, about your, your beginnings. Well, I when I first started surveying, I, uh, I had just gotten back from Vietnam, and I, I needed a job. And um, this was in 1968, and all my skill set from the military didn't transfer real well to the uh, to the civilian population. There weren't people and looking for other people to shoot other people. Yeah, not a lot. Now, mind <laughs> you, I lived in Washington D.C. at the time, so well, there could true. have been something there. <laughs> I guess maybe. <laughs> yeah. Now, um, but I was, you know, I was just bouncing around. I was actually I was working in a Seven Eleven at a strip mall up in Gaithersburg, where a surveying company was, and the uh, surveyor hired me right out of Seven Eleven. And I had no idea what I was going to what what surveying was. I thought it was landscaping until he handed me a plumb bob, and I thought, now what am I going to do with this? And uh, so, long story short, I uh, I worked in uh, the East Coast in Maryland for a couple different firms, and uh, I, that's where I got the bug. And um, then I moved out west. I I, I got an opportunity to work in Alberta, Canada. And uh, so I went up there, and I worked for a couple years, and I wanted to stay out west, but I wanted to come back to the States, and that's when I migrated from Canada to uh, the state of Washington, and I worked in Spokane, and in the early 80s, we had a downturn in the economy in Spokane, and it was very difficult to find work, so I moved over to the west side of the state, and that's how I started teaching. And I, as you know, I've, I taught for, uh, I taught surveying for 23 years at Renton Technical College, and yeah. the rest, as they say, is history. You know, one of the one of the things that that people fail to grasp, I think, sometimes when we talk about the east part of the country versus the west part of the country, they're they're kind of the same except in reverse. And and the reason I say that is 
along the coastlines, like here in the Washington area or where you are in, in Seattle, basically, area, um, there's a lot of activity going on, and uh, big firms pop up, and there's lots of things to do, over, generally speaking, over time. Of course, downturns come and go. But once you get sort of on the other side of the mountains, so to speak, um, and, and in some cases not even to the mountains, but into the rural areas, um, that that boom never seems to arrive. I mean, you have ups and downs, obviously, and you can build a pretty strong business in a small <coughs> community if you if you do it right. But that continuity of of work and big projects and the kind of things that that build good sized companies, by and large, happen mo- more along the coast than than they do in coastal states to the interior. You know, you go on into the interior of the country, the bigger cities, you know, the Chicago's and the St. Louis and all the, you know, everything in the middle there, obviously they're they're pretty strong too. But it's just interesting to me being an East Coaster living in the mountains, not on the other side of them, and seeing that contrast here and then thinking about what you just said. Um, oh, yeah. It's, it's kind of interesting how that evolves, but it certainly... Uh, Create some opportunities for for those who are willing to to go, for lack of a better term, where the action is. Uh, there's goods and bads about that, and I'm sure you've experienced those as well. Well, you know, one of the interesting things that happened to me is uh, when I was in Washington D.C. Now I grew up in Tacoma Park, right outside of Washington D.C., and um, never had to worry about employment. Uh, you know I, that. You got a job, and there was always work in that area. And then when I moved out west, it was the first time I ever experienced getting laid off. And that's just what you're talking about. You know, they just, they were, um, the, the, the work just wasn't there. It was just a whole different, a whole different demographic. And I, uh, I, it, it came as quite a shock to me. But then again, if you you know if you're in the profession that you you really care about and you want to stay with, you know you like you say you go to where the work is, and um, that's how I got to the Seattle area. And there's a funny story about Seattle with me is when I uh, first came back from Vietnam, I came into the Seattle area uh, to get out of the army, and uh, it was a cold rainy day in April, and I swore I'd never come back to Seattle again. <laughs> so 30 years later, here I am, you know, and I've been here for over 30 years. So it's, it's uh, you want to make God laugh, you tell him your plans, you know. Yeah, that's right. I saw that on a, <laughs> on a billboard somewhere the other day. <laughs> yeah. uh, that, that's certainly true. And now, am I correct that part of that, that excursion across the country was a motorcycle ride of some kind or was it an old Camaro? Uh, no, that was um, no. I just I just came over and I transferred my family out. The motorcycle rides is what I do now. I take off a couple <laughs> weeks every year. I just I, I wind around. I'm semi-retired now, and I have the luxury of doing that. So I uh, myself and a friend of mine. I'm also retired from the Washington Army National Guard, and he and I we we try to get away. And I think the wives like us to get away for a couple weeks anyhow. So that's probably a good thing. <laughs> You got a lot of cool places to ride out there. You can hop on the ferry and go out to one of the islands, or or go back in the mountains. Or there's lots of cool places to go. Yeah, you know, I I, uh, I I've just fallen in love with the West since I've been out here. It's just uh, the uh, the grandeur of it all. And I know that you've been all over the West too, so you you know what I'm talking about. And it's uh, yeah, I, I I 
the trouble is, is that if I go across the state of Washington, that's going like going through three states on the East Coast, you know. Yeah, that's true. Did you tell me when we were at Glacier a couple of years or so ago that, did you ride a bike through that road or was that? Uh, oh, yeah, I've taken my motorcycle over that road. Yeah, and it that, is. That, that had to be pretty exciting, right? Oh, it, it it's just, I you know, if God made anything prettier than Glacier National Park, I believe he kept it. Yeah, it certainly is beautiful. I've, I've only ever seen it in the wintertime. But, but yeah, it's pretty that one time too. we were there, eh? Oh, yeah. Yeah, and I've been there a couple other times, too, and flew over it uh, uh, once um, with uh, Kay McDonald's brother, Tom. And oh, so yeah. that was kind of, mm-hmm. kind of an exciting trip as well. But uh, anyway, um, we're about to the end of the first segment here. We, it, I wanted to talk to you about that background because I think it's important for the audience to always know from whence their their uh, – uh, their show is coming, and, and I always like to give plenty of time for people to talk about what they've done. And, and I think that's important because uh, we see a lot of similarities as we, we look at our different backgrounds. So with that, let's go to our first break, and we'll be right back. Want to know if your Seanstead locator is still under warranty? Go to Seanstead.com and click on Warranty Finder in the lower left-hand corner. Enter your six-digit serial number, and it will tell you everything you need to know. Out of warranty? Click on Repair Department. But here's a tip. Before sending it in, pick up a $25 discount by going to Specials and Sales under the Buy Now tab at www.schonstedt.com. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. Quick Stakes is your answer to staking. Lightweight, easy to ride on, easy to use, easy to find, and won't break your back carrying them like the old-fashioned wooden stakes. Have you tried a sample? If not, get a pen and paper and write down this number, 800-438-0387, or go to quickstake.com, that's Q-U-I-K-S-T-A-K-E.com, and order your samples. Ask your surveying supply dealer for quickstakes today. Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's Web Radio. Attention surveyors, Seanstead announces the Maggie, the next generation magnetic locator. The Maggie combines the best features of two flagship Seanstead products, the sensitivity and precision of the GA52CX and the visual display and single-handed operation of the GA92XT. Contact your dealer for details or go to www.seanstead.com. Seanstead, the best just got better. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Talking with, excuse me, with Jim Cohn this morning about. Uh, well, first of all, we've been talking about background, and that's always good to know. And um, before we, we we jump into the topic, just one other quick thing: your your activities in Washington. Obviously, you've been in the teaching side of things for a really, really long time. And, but that's not never never been your full time thing. I don't think. I mean, you've worked in companies that. Most of the time, when you were doing that, right? 
Well, no. When I was with Ed Renton Technical College, I worked full-time for the college. Okay. And then I worked uh, part-time for companies, and I had my own little consulting firm. And my reason was just to keep just to keep my fingers in it to um, you know to make sure that I that I stayed up with the profession because the hardest part for me as a teacher was keeping up with the profession. That's why you always saw me at conferences and stuff like that, so I could keep right. things going. And then well, when I good. left, I... This... go ahead. Uh, then when I left the school, I, I got back into the industry and I got into, I became a uh, project manager for a company and and uh, then I ended up retiring out of that. But and I also did some adjunct teaching at, at the Seattle University. Now what but, what kind was their program uh, surveying? Not a survey program specifically, but surveying courses for um, somebody people in other curricula. Yeah, well, they had uh, civil and environmental engineers at Seattle University are required to take one course in surveying. And as you know, you can't teach a lot of surveying in one course, but I did try to get them the basics, and so they'd have an understanding of being able to talk intelligently to surveyors when they worked with them in the profession. I thought if I got that to them, then that would be, that would be better than a lot. Well, if you didn't teach them anything other than the fact that surveyors are extremely important to them, <laughs> that's a big lesson, that's for sure. Oh. It seems sometimes that message doesn't get conveyed very well. Yeah, I would start out some of my lectures with, don't ever do this, and this is why. <laughs> we go from there. <laughs> so how, was extensive, how extensive was the Renton program? Was it, um, it was a two-year or four-year, which, which is it? It's a two-year program, and I was really very proud of it. Myself and the other instructor, Martin Paquette, really put it together with the help of the Land Surveyors Association of Washington. They're the ones that came to the school and, and lobbied to start the surveying program. And this is back when Mel Garland was the Education Committee Chair back in the late 80s. And the unique thing about Renton Tech is we had the students in the classroom for six hours a day. And so we could develop our, our curriculum, and we developed it with the help of the LSAW. And it was a great model of the industry and education working together to, to, to develop this program. And, um, so, and it was all survey-oriented except for the mandatory general education classes that we had to have. And um, it was, it, you know, it's been a very successful program. We have... Out of our graduates that we know of, we have over 40 PLSs, and uh, I think our last count was in the 70s for LSITs. And, um, you know, we have everybody from technicians to people who own their own companies now that are graduates of the program. So, it, you know, it, it really served the state well, and it, it still is. So when you first went there, that was at the very beginning of creating the program then? Well, when I first went there, I went there in 84, and it was a one-year course, and it was called Civil Engineering Technology, where you taught drafting for half a year and basic surveying stuff for half a year. Oh. And so it started out with pretty humble beginnings. So how, how broad is Renton? I mean, obviously it has an engineering curriculum. Does it, what, else do they, what else do they have there? Oh, Renton Technical College has a variety of things. They have, you know, nursing programs and computer science programs and, 
and uh, automotive technicians and many other things. And um, now they're even starting to offer bachelor's degree programs. I know they have one going in computer science right now, but that's a whole new thing. Renton started as Renton Vocational Technical Institute, which started in World War II to uh, train workers to work on the Boeing airplanes for the war effort. And that's how it all got started. And it just blossomed from there. So it was um, yeah, it's kind of interesting you should say that because there for a while, as the community college system began to evolve from the technical schools, mm-hmm. um, because I know there was one that it actually turned into a community college where my grandson's going now, as a matter of fact, uh, that started out kind of like a drafting school. In, yeah. in a little down store, downtown building, and uh, now of course it's got this big, huge campus. But there seemed to be a lot of that kind of thing going on, sort of a specialization, as you were saying, for Boeing and in other parts of the country to supply workers to other industries. Um, and then I'm not sure. I guess it was what in maybe the mid to late '60s when a lot of those became what we call community colleges now, and yeah. became part of the the overall education structure in a state. And originally, like like the, the two-year school I went to was a feeder school to Virginia Tech, at least on the engineering surveying side, not necessarily for some of the other things. But I, I guess that evolution was sort of nationwide. Yes, I, I believe so. I, you know, when I was back east, uh, I was working for uh, Russ Lohman at, at, in Annapolis, Maryland, and uh, I went to Anne Arundel Community College, which was a feeder school to the University of uh, Maryland. It was, it was the same sort of thing that you were just talking about. And uh, it, um, we're trying to do that out west here, trying to have a lot of the two-year schools be feeder schools to the regional universities for surveying. Because, you know, we don't have the population base, and, but we do have good schools out here. But if we could get students from several different community colleges or technical college feeding into one four-year program for surveying, that's another avenue that we're, we're certainly trying to pursue. And there's, a, I guess, a couple of those within reach. Uh, when I say within reach, not that far away, right? I mean, I mean you got, um, I was going to say Oregon Tech, but that's not right. Um, yeah, Oregon Tech is one of them. Oregon in, in technology. In right. Yeah. yeah, and then, well, of course, da- down the road a bit, you got uh, Fresno, but that's that's pretty far away. But. Yeah, we also have uh, Idaho State has a has Oh, that's a, right. A, yeah, they're not that program. far. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, I kind of yeah. forget how close Idaho is to you guys. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, that's a relative term out here. It's well, it is a relative term. Miles. That's true. <laughs> it's the direction. next state over, right? So, But it could yeah, be a exactly. thousand miles away. <laughs> yeah, true that, enough, that's yes. true. So um, this program still today, then, uh, it's still going, right, the Renton program? Yes, it is. Yeah. Uh, we're, we're, we're trying to – I'm still on the advisory committee. As a matter of fact, I'm the chair of the advisory committee of the program. And um, we're trying to um, keep things current, and we're looking for other ways to reach um, our, our, our survey technicians to help them because – I don't know if you want to get into this now, but it's it's becoming more and more critical that the technicians 
get um, get some formal education. And here in the in the Seattle area, the technicians can come to night schools or we offer classes and stuff like that. But the guy on the other side of the state, he really doesn't have that that um, opportunity. So we're, we're we're really investigating putting courses online and doing all kinds of different things, trying to think outside of the box in conjunction with the LSAW, the Land Surveyors of Washington, um, in order to give those technicians statewide the opportunity to to learn new things. So in, in your experiences through your years there at Renton, I, I don't know what a percentage might have been, but I have to assume that some of the people who went through your program went then into the workforce as technicians rather than going to another two years to get their, their four-year degree. Is that correct? Yes, most of them did. Most okay. of them did. And in the state of Washington, we don't have a, an education requirement for licensure. Mm-hmm. And so um, a lot of uh, our graduates went on to become professional land surveyors. Uh, but, uh, yes, a lot of them did, and um, a lot of them went in as technicians and, and are working their way up, and a lot of them just want to stay technicians, and, as you know, they're worth their weight in gold. You know, they're, yeah, they're and very that's one of the sought reasons. after and valuable. Yeah, and one of the reasons I want to talk to you today about, about that, because our tendency is to think, well, anybody who goes to a school or anybody who gets into the profession at any level obviously is looking to go toward licensure, and, and, and that really isn't the case. I mean, certainly there's a, a good percentage who do, but there, I mean, even through our Certified Survey Technician Program, you know, we identify people all the time who've been party chief level or something of that nature for 30 years and, and don't really have any interest in going beyond that. So yeah. certainly a lot of the students who go are looking for beginnings to be a part of the profession but don't necessarily go seeking to be licensed. Yes, and there's and I and I know uh, graduates of mine uh, that don't want to be licensed. They they are very happy being the party chief or the CAD tech or something like that, and they're and they they feel you know like they're they're fulfilled in their uh, in their career path, and they they enjoy that, and that's what they want to do. And you know, I, I know for a fact here in the Washington area that they're really coveted. I mean, you know, the, the companies would sure like to have them, you know. Oh, there's no question about that. And, and you, you stated it very well a minute ago when you were talking about their weight in gold, um, so to speak, because let's face it, in in the world we live in, the the person who's putting the seal on is not all, not always going to ever go to the field. I would like to think they maybe go and look things over before they put their seal on a, on a boundary or something, but <coughs> oftentimes they never go to the field or construction layout or any of that other kind of stuff. And so you really have to have people you can depend on. Oh, exactly. And it's becoming more and more critical. You know, if I, if I can tell another story about my past, when I was working for uh, Snyder and Associates in Gaithersburg, Maryland, um, I was uh, I was just a technician, you know. I was I was well rear chainman and front chainman back in the day, and the party chief that we had when we had to do any calculations in the field, um, 
he would do the calculations, and we would have to do them also, and then we'd check our numbers so we could make sure that we didn't make a blunder. And um, that's how I learned how to calculate horizontal curves. And, you know, that, I learned so much stuff in the field while we were there because it was a different time. You know, we didn't have data collectors and all this kind of stuff. Well, today's technicians, they don't have that luxury, uh, and that's, that's what right. I call it, a luxury. We're going to have to go to break in about five seconds, Jim. Let's pick up on that one, because that's a really important point. Okay, so real good. Yeah. We'll mm-hmm. be right back. Attention surveyors. Seanstead announces the Maggie, the next-generation magnetic locator. The Maggie combines the best features of two flagship Seanstead products, the sensitivity and precision of the GA52CX and the visual display and single-handed operation of the GA92XT. Contact your dealer for details or go to www.seanstead.com. Seanstead, the best just got better. This is Dr. Susan Blank, host of Detailing Addiction and Medical Director of the Atlanta Healing Center. Please join me on Tuesday afternoons at 4 p.m. With all the back and forth in today's politics, it seems as though the Constitution gets lost in the mix. If you want to brush up on your Constitution, then join Michael Conley every Wednesday from 4 to 5 p.m. for the show Our Constitution on AmericasWebRadio.com. Quick stakes. Is your answer to staking lightweight, easy to ride on, easy to use, easy to find, and won't break your back carrying them like the old-fashioned wooden stakes? Have you tried a sample? If not, get a pen and paper and write down this number, 800-438-0387, or go to quickstake.com, that's Q-U-I-K-S-T-A-K-E.com, and order your samples. Ask your surveying supply dealer for quickstakes today. Want to know if your Seanstead locator is still under warranty? Go to Seanstead.com and click on Warranty Finder in the lower left-hand corner. Enter your six-digit serial number, and it will tell you everything you need to know. Out of warranty? Click on Repair Department. But here's a tip. Before sending it in, pick up a $25 discount by going to Specials and Sales under the Buy Now tab at www.seanstedt.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. As we were going to break, Jim, you were starting to relate a, a story to us. Oh, about, yeah, about the... Well, you know, like I, like I was saying, I learned how to do a lot of calculations, and I learned an awful lot about the theory behind surveying when, when I was uh, out in the field. As a uh, as a rear chainman and a front chainman, and uh, today's surveyor doesn't have that luxury because you know we we have so many things automated. You know we have data collection, we have robotic total stations, we have GPS, all those things, and they're marvelous tools. Don't get me wrong, but the um, the, the the calculations behind it all are hidden, if you will. You know it just happens and. Where does that poor technician get the chance to learn about this stuff? And I think that that's where things are so critical. You know, Kurt, I think we do a very good job as a profession on keeping the professional up to speed. You know, we have state conferences, we have national conferences, we have seminars, we have a lot of stuff, but not so much for the technician. 
you know, they, it's harder for them to find an avenue unless they go to school full time. And a lot of them just can't do that. You know, they're married, they got kids, all that kind of stuff. And so we need to start putting more emphasis on training our technician and, and having avenues that he has a place to go to, um, to learn these things. And I'm, no, I totally agree with that. I, whether it's the professional in the field or whether it's the, the technician in the field, talking about all the new technologies, and I agree with you, they're fantastic. They, they provide so much benefit to the surveyor and to the surveyor's clients, no question about it. Mm. I'm just old fogey enough to still think you really ought to know how the soup is made. Oh, yeah. You really ought no, to know I... how those answers get derived and no. and have some sense of whether or not the result is logical. Mm-hmm. And it's I easy believe... enough to get an illogical answer. Yes, and I believe that's critical. And if you don't know the theory behind what you're doing, you don't know if the answer is right or wrong. And exactly. You know, it's it's what I always call the common sense check. When you see your numbers, do you have a feeling that, yeah, that looks pretty good, or, oh, man, something's strange here. And yeah, now, it, it's a real dilemma, I think, because the companies, by and large, don't have the, the time or, or the money or all the other elements required to actually provide that level of training to their employees. Now, I know there are some. Some companies do a, a pretty good job of that. But but for the most part, I don't think surveying companies do have that capability to help guide those folks along. And in today's fast-paced world, um, it's harder and harder and harder to do on the job. I mean, you know, like you were talking about, and you and I are pretty close to the same age when we were coming along, we had the opportunity to learn everything right there on the ground in terms of what we gathered and how we gathered and whether it made sense or not and all those kind of things. But I don't sense that today. Now, I'm not out there every day with a, with a GPS unit or with a survey crew or whatever, but my sense of it is that there's a lot less learning going on than there is production. Yeah, and I, I think that's economic-driven. You know, the, the companies, sure. yeah. they have to, uh, you know, they have to make a buck. That's what they're in business for, and uh, they don't have the time and the wherewithal a little scary on the liability side though <laughs> oh boy terrifying you know now that yeah. we're we're the guys now stamping the, the drawings you know and uh and you know it's if if you don't have faith in your party chief or your draftsman or something like that you're uh you know you don't sleep well at night <laughs> you know what i mean I just, I just got a call the other day from a lady who had had a survey done um, she was looking at buying a house. I think it was maybe through Hood or something. I don't remember exactly, but she wasn't certain that the, the information she had gotten was completely accurate, and apparently the house was set up so that on one side the roof overhung a property line, and on the other the edge of the house showed to be less than a foot off the property line. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so she was concerned about, you know, am I going to have a problem with this? And and she said, well, and I'm, you know, if, if the surveyor did something wrong, I'm sure they have insurance. And I said, don't count on that. <laughs> yes, exactly, yeah, yeah. That's a question you always need to ask. But And, and that's uh, a little off topic, perhaps, but it's related to the topic from the perspective that 
one of the best insurance policies you can have for those situations is well-trained and well-qualified people who are doing the work. Yeah, yeah. Which leads us back to what you guys have been doing. And in in your travels around the country, and, of course, you're on our board, so you see people from all the country, um, at least periodically, and I don't know if you have these conversations or not, but do you have a sense that the dilemma you and I are describing and you see firsthand is commonplace everywhere? I do. I do. I think it's it's a universal problem for our profession. And, you know, I've talked to Canadian surveyors, and they, they, they tell me the same thing, although things are a little different up there as far as their education part. Sure. But, you know, this, I believe, this is one of the, the areas, or probably, mind you, I'm prejudiced here, but probably the most important thing that the state societies working with our national society can do to help our profession. If we can provide things um, to help these technicians as well as we help the professional, I think that's a great service that we would provide to our membership. Do you think um, some kind of online training, because as you pointed out, and of course we all understand the People aren't necessarily going to be able to just not work and go to school or even work part-time and go to school when they're trying to raise a family or get started or or whatever. Is your sense that through distance learning there's a good opportunity for this to occur, somehow maybe connected with what they're doing every day? You know, I've always thought even in the the four-year colleges it would be great if, if those students had an opportunity to intern somewhere um, on a, on an ongoing basis, or at least maybe on a summer basis. But is your sense that that online can accomplish this without people having to take the time away from earning for their families to to get where they need? Well, I think it can certainly help. You know, it's uh, here's I'll use the LS, our our state society as a uh, as as a, an example. We have. We put together uh, a couple years ago a online course, and what I mean by an online course, it's just we had a, a class uh, helping people getting ready to sit for their exam, and we had a series of 12 classes, and we taught it, and they'd come to the class here at Renton Technical College, and but you know it was just in the local area, so we we filmed all of it, and we put it online through our website. And now we have people getting ready to sit for their exam that they can go online for a, for a pretty small cost and view these 12 lectures. And uh, it, we, we've been very successful at it. We also have another thing that we've done at our, our North Sound chapter of our local uh, LSAW, our local chapter. And we're doing what we call a CAP class, and that stands for Career Advancement Program. And it's, it's, it's targeting that technician. So it's a, it's a different level of education. And um, what I'm planning on doing as the education chair, I want to get that. I want to record those classes too so technicians throughout the state or throughout the country could, could come and they could look at that at the technician level. I think a lot of there's a lot of real good online stuff now, but for the most part, it's geared towards that professional 
or the one that wants to become the professional. And that's real good, but if you're, if you're a, a survey technician uh, and you don't understand basic right-angle trigonometry, you're, you're handicapped. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. yeah. And so we have, to, we have to have, the way I look at it is like a two-tier structure. We have to have the technician learn first on what they need to know, and if they want to advance from there, then those those opportunities would be available to them. And I, I really believe that this is this is a place that the local state societies can uh, can can really help their people. And I know darn good and well with the NSPS, this conversation comes up quite a bit in our education committee. Mm-hmm. So, yep. Uh, you know, it's, and it's, and it's, I think a lot of that too, particularly at that local level, when you're when you're looking at assisting the the technicians, um, I guess rightly or wrongly, my sense is maybe we don't have enough of our our PLSs, our licensed people, engaging in assisting with that. I don't know if you, you know, sense you, that where you are, but yeah, just, you bring up, well, nice and we're all busy there. guys. I, I'm not trying to say that we're not busy people, but yeah. One of but the things be. that I, one of the things I've always said about that particular subject is, as professionals, perhaps we're not legally bound to be mentors to our technicians, but we certainly are morally bound to to be mentors to our technicians. Now. That that's, that sounds very easy, and I'm sure that you can sit there and, and think about people all day long that are magnificent practitioners, very good surveyors. They cannot convey that information to another person. You know, they're just bad teachers. They're, they're excellent surveyors, but they can't get that point across. So that's another challenge to us right there. Right, Not only and, and yeah. I think that points out the unique nature of the good teacher because oh, yeah. You know, you got great people doing great work, but not everybody's cut out for the instructor side. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And then you need to have okay. What do you want? Okay, teacher. What do you want to teach? And then they have to say, okay, I feel that I'm competent in teaching this, instead of having their ego get the better of them. Say, oh yeah, I'll teach that, and they don't know what the heck they're talking about. <laughs> yeah. So, or, or, or worse yet, uh, I don't want my employees going to learn from that guy. He might steal them from me. <laughs> yes, you know? yeah, that's that's another that's that's another uh, uh, terrible thing, you know. Yeah, you know uh, that reminds they... me of the. Uh, I, I heard a saying one time. I, I don't know who to credit this to, but it said something to the effect of, "Train your people well enough that they can leave you, and treat them well enough so they don't want to." <laughs> yeah. Well, that's great advice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm not. Yeah. I don't know how often it's followed, but it certainly is great advice. Um, yeah, no question sure. about that, because um, you do want your people to be capable, but you also want them to think that working with you is as good a. You want them to want to work for you as much as you want your clients to want you to work for them. Yes, exactly. And yeah. so it all kind of blends together, and um, so we're we're about ready to to go to our next break. I know before we leave, you want to talk a little bit about the CST program. You'd mentioned that. And yeah. so I, I do want to have the opportunity to talk about that. So we'll go to break and we'll come back and do that. Attention surveyors. Seanstead announces the Maggie, the next generation magnetic locator. 
The Maggie combines the best features of two flagship Shonsted products, the sensitivity and precision of the GA52CX and the visual display and single-handed operation of the GA92XT. Contact your dealer for details or go to www.shonsted.com. Shonsted, the best just got better. With all the back and forth in today's politics, it seems as though the Constitution gets lost in the mix. If you want to brush up on your Constitution, then join Michael Conley every Wednesday from 4 to 5 p.m. for the show Our Constitution on America's Webradio.com. Quick Stakes is your answer to staking. Lightweight, easy to ride on, easy to use, easy to find, and won't break your back carrying them like the old-fashioned wooden stakes. Have you tried a sample? If not... Get a pen and paper and write down this number, 800-438-0387, or go to quickstake.com, that's Q-U-I-K-S-T-A-K-E.com, and order your samples. Ask your surveying supply dealer for quickstakes today. Want to know if your Seanstead locator is still under warranty? Go to Seanstead.com and click on Warranty Finder in the lower left-hand corner. Enter your six-digit serial number, and it will tell you everything you need to know. Out of warranty? Click on Repair Department. But here's a tip. Before sending it in, pick up a $25 discount by going to Specials and Sales under the Buy Now tab at www.schonstedt.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. We're back for our last segment today with Jim Cohn. It's been a great conversation so far, Jim. And we've been talking about this, the, the training and all that, and, and I want you to talk about our the CST program, which you had mentioned. Just a curious question before we do that. In talking about mechanisms for conveying the message, um, you're familiar with the CFEDS program? Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. Is their model something that's doable, or is that just a whole different kind of thing? You know, I think I, I am a CFED, and I think that that CFED model is the best distance learning program I've ever had. It, it's, it's, it's excellent. And uh, I would sure like to use that model. As a matter of fact, I'm working with Martin Paquette, the instructor at uh, Renton Technical College, on some online courses, and that's the model that I, I strive to, to try to emulate it because it's really yeah, very good. Well, having heard you say that, maybe that's something we can strive toward is to develop that kind of a program because I've never done CFEDS, of course, but I've been around it a lot, been very yeah. much involved in it, and it seems as though it's a a good technique because you actually do get down in the weeds, so to speak. You you really do get into the subject matter, and it's not peripheral or, or superficial. It's, it's really... Um, basic information you need to know and then of course for the CFEDs it has a whole different reason but it seems that's a good model to convey the, the information. Oh it's, it's excellent and I tell you you want to put something like that together sign me up because I'll be more <laughs> than happy to help any way I can on that. That's uh, great. I, I really do think it's something we should be talking about at our board level maybe that would be a good thing to bring up to the board when, when we meet again. That yeah I yeah I think that that would be that would you be wonderful. You and I have to remember to do that. Okay, <laughs> I better write that down. I have a good memory; it just doesn't well, last long. <laughs> just listen to the show over and over, and then you won't forget it. Yeah, yeah. There you go. 
Yeah. But you were going to talk about CST for a bit. You know, this CST program that uh, that NSPS has put together has got to be one of the most exciting things that I've seen come out of the NSPS as far as education. Now, we've been talking about the technician and how the technician can, um, you know, they need to get their education and stuff like that. But, you know, as a professional, you get licensed, you have that those uh, letters after your name, and, you know, you, you feel good about it. And I want to I want to preference this by telling you another life story of mine, if if we have a minute. When I when I first moved up to Alberta, Canada, I was working for a company, and I was you know the go-to guy. They needed somebody in the field, and I was in the field. They needed a draftsman. I was a draftsman, and that kind of stuff. Alberta had a certified engineering technician program, and I applied for it. Long story short. I, I became a certified engineering technician for the Alberta Society. And that piece of paper right there changed my whole career. It, it, it made me think that I can do more. I can go as high as I want to go. I'm encumbered by my ambition. And that's, eventually it led me to become a professional. And um, those kinds of things were great. Plus, the company that I work for, they would use that saying when they when they bid on jobs, we have certified technicians, so we have this certain expertise that we can do. And this is just a win-win thing altogether. Uh, I'm advocating right now that our students that are at Renton Tech, we're going to have each one of them tested, and I'm soliciting money from our, our local organization to pay for their uh, pay for their fees. And I don't think that's going to be a problem. Our profession supports these people pretty well. But it is a... uh, Is the difference between that and our CST program that it also provides instruction, not just the testing? Exactly. You see, that's the beautiful thing about about this. I would would, uh, encourage anybody listening to this program to go onto our website and uh, go onto the CST, and they have the different levels. They explain how uh, you can go from level one to, I believe it's level four or five, and you can go over the office or you can go to the field, and they have instruction there for you. There's things that you can learn about. There's, there's, it's very well thought of, and it's, and it's critical. And I know it's, it's caught on on the East Coast pretty well, I believe, hasn't it? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and it's, it's caught on pretty well across the country, just not as, as heavily as here on the East Coast. I mean, there's. We have tech CSTs all over the country, but yeah. but certainly the East Coast uh, has a, a strong presence. We were contacted not too long ago by uh, a surveyor who is involved in education for his company. It's a huge company, and hmm. I think we're talking maybe a couple of hundred technicians that are in their company that they want to get involved in the program. And um, so it seems to me, just based on what we're saying here, that the one thing... I won't say missing necessarily, but the one thing we don't have that would might be helpful here is an educational model to go along with the certification model. Because yeah. right now people are learning on the job or whatever through their company training programs or whatever, but we don't really have a an educational mo- module, and, and maybe that's what you were 
you were thinking about? Well, I think it would certainly I think it would certainly be great, and I think that uh, if we take a look at the Seafed's uh, uh, model, that would be a good thing to to use as a guide, I believe, because we could re- just think of the people we could reach with that. I mean, it could be everywhere. Mm-hmm. And um, I know that in Virginia, you guys had that apprenticeship type thing, for lack of a better word, for a number of years. It's still going on. A, yeah, that was a five. And now that was, I remember taking it back in the early or late 60s. Yeah, and it, it's still I think going it started mid, mid-60s is when it began. And I know here uh, in the Northern Virginia area, it's it's hard to find a surveyor here who got their training locally who didn't mm-hmm. go through that program. Um, yeah. Just because the the companies bought into it, the the local chapters bought into it, and um, it it sort of went down a little bit over the last couple of years. But my understanding is, I'm going to I usually go to the graduation ceremonies. I think they've got some people graduating, maybe a dozen or more people this year, which is a pretty big number um, compared to to some years. But certainly, it's a it's an important program, and I think one of the one of the struggles that it's having right now is we're transitioning from a group of instructors who had been there for decades mm-hmm. who are now not you know ready to retire and so finding replacements for them is is a bit of a struggle i think but yeah. the program's still going on and it does set a good model for uh training at that technician level and then of course here in virginia we're like we're like washington you know four-year degree is required so you still have to go through the amount of time to get to licensure, as always, but through these classes, through this, what they've called their apprenticeship program, which we may not like the word apprenticeship, but that's what it was to begin with. It actually has a tie to the state education department as well. Oh, that's great. Yeah. And so um, it's been a good program over time to teach those technicians, in this case ones who are specifically moving on to licensure, all of those things, uh, the root of all of those things that, that they're practicing in the field every day. And that's kind of what our whole conversation has been about. Yeah, that, and, and that, that's, a, that's a great program, and it's, that's, that's the kind of stuff we need, and we need to get our, our local societies um, on board on that. And I think that your idea about uh, about creating something on the model of the uh, CFED is, is, is marvelous, I, you know, I think we need to do that because, as you know, our formal education system, we're having troubles um, nationwide having um, programs available. And then when it comes to the technician, we have even less programs. Right. And, and you know, we, I have, I have vacillating thoughts about our, our educational program, particularly our four-year programs in terms of how do we strengthen them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I've talked about this on the show before, but originally the concept was there'd be regional schools fed by a group of states that would create enough student population to make a program viable. Right. And then it got to the point where almost every state decided they needed their own program, which diluted the student pool, of course, yeah. and, and also stretched the instructor pool, which is getting more shallow all the time. Um, and so it's important. We've got to have that educational structure. We have to support that structure to get those degrees going. At the same time, we've got to do something at the, at the next level 
down, so to speak. I don't mean to imply that it's less important, but <coughs> excuse me. No, I, I but today. but you you bring up an excellent point there. We have to be able to reach out to all of our surveyors and all the people that want to get into surveyors. And, you know, that model of going to the four-year school, that's great if you can do it. But there's a lot of people that just can't do it because they have to do things like support their family and stuff like that. Yep. And um, so we have, to look at, we have to look at other models. And, you know, we're talking about how the technology has, has stopped the surveyor from learning in the field. But that same technology could be a great tool for us to reach out to the surveyors nationwide, too. Absolutely. Well, we got about a minute left, so uh, before I forget, I want to thank you for being with me today. I think it was very important for us to have this show because... Well, it was a real, we real honor to, for me to be on. We need to spread this message about the importance of our technician level and certification and finding better ways to educate and, and get people prepared to do the things they're going to do in the future. Whether or not they become licensed, they still have to have a particular unique skill set that is becoming harder and harder to get just by osmosis traveling around with somebody else knows it. Um, So I I appreciate you coming on today to talk about this issue, and I hope that our listeners will will download this show for sure and take it to their their local chapter meetings and their state society meetings and say, you know, we really need to be talking about this. Oh, yeah. And if if I can be of any help to, to... Well, as you know, to the NSPS or anybody else for that matter, I'll be more than happy to work with them. I really appreciate that, Jen. And thanks again for being with me today. It's been a great having you on the show. It's been it's been great. Thank you very much, Kurt. Thank you. Take care. Mm-hmm. Bye now. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. <laughs>